All right. Good morning. How are we? Good. Hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, I guess that uh, y'all had a good Thanksgiving, right? Okay. Anybody eat any turkey this morning once again? Yeah, one person. Okay, so only one person has an excuse to fall asleep today, all right? That's a, I got y'all right off the back, so you know it's going to be a good day. Um, we actually went around the table uh, at Thanksgiving and um, just kind of discussed uh, things that we were thankful for, things that uh, we appreciated. And um, we actually, uh, as we were going around the table, they said that it had to uh, happen this year, okay? So it had to be something that we were thankful for in the year. And it couldn't be Jesus or your family, all right? So you know the type of group that we're dealing with when you can't be Jesus or the family, all right? And I'm very thankful for that um, because, yeah, our group really loves the Lord, loves each other well. And so um, we went around, and um, when it got to me, um, I just mentioned how uh, appreciative I am of y'all as a church um, and the way that God's really been moving um, in and throughout the church uh, this year and um, just the different things that we've been seeing him doing. It's been really encouraging. Um, the way that you love my wife uh, the way you love my daughter, the way that you love each other, um, the way that you love me is just very, very encouraging. So I'm very thankful for y'all, um, and I just enjoy um, this holiday season as we think about the hope of Christ, as we're thankful for what God has done. It's just really encouraging to think back and to reflect on what God is doing, all right? So now that the mushy stuff is out the way, all right, um, let's get back into uh, the series of John. We're back into John now. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that in September we started the book of John. Um, we took a little bit of a break as we looked at kind of my story, how do we align our stories with what God is calling us to do. Uh, and now we're going to be back in John for a while. Um, we're going to be walking throughout this book throughout the year. Um, we'll also take a couple of other short breaks like we did this last time. Um, just to focus on different issues and stuff, but we're going to walk up to John 13, which is where we actually started last September. So we'll finish the book of John um, in the course of a couple of years. And so um, we want to look at this book, get a gauge on what John is saying. What is, God or what is John trying to tell us about God? What is John trying to tell us about the Son of God, Jesus, and the gospel? And what does that look like for our lives? How do we effectively live out what John is calling us to do? Okay, so um, we're going to be picking up where we left off, which is John chapter 4. All right, if you have your smartphone, you can actually use that to follow along. Uh, we have a version app underneath the live tabs. You can uh, type in the well Austin. You can find us there. Uh, or you can take this uh, link right here, put it right into your browser, and it will come up. There are polls, scriptures, places to take notes, um, stuff like that. If you don't have a physical Bible and you want to use that, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Um, feel free to reach under, grab that. Um, if you physically don't own a Bible, we actually want you to take that Bible and to keep that. That's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have the word of the Lord. And so if you want a better Bible, Christmas is coming up. Amazon's a great site. So you can just go ahead and um, put that on your Amazon wish list and we can do that. So um, I have to finish this sermon before this candle burns out is what they told me. All right. Actually, this candle is supposed to last for four weeks. So I don't know how that's actually going to happen, but uh, we'll see what we do here. So here we go. Um, John chapter four. Uh, and we are actually going to pick it up right in verse one. John chapter four, verse one, it says, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, Je um, yeah, when, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay? So this is just the setting of our story. Um, the Pharisees, we see them kind of jump into the picture 
answer right away. The Pharisees were big enemies of Jesus, all right? And we're going to see a lot of the Pharisees as this story kind of moves on. Um, they were the ones that were always hating on what Jesus was doing and stuff. Um, the Pharisees are kind of a, a central figure in the book of John. Uh, they create more drama than like 19 high school teenage girls put together, all right? And they always have something bickering about Jesus with. And so we'll see them a lot. They're not actually in this story a whole lot, but maybe they're trying to start up some controversy. And so Jesus leaves where he was and goes to another place. Um, but two quick things I want to point out from the kind of setting of this story that will help us set our pace as we go this morning. Um, one of them is there in verse 4. Okay, if you look at verse 4 again, um, it reads that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Okay, now, is this true? Did Jesus have to pass through this area? No, definitely not. Okay, I have a map, and it may not show as great. This is as big as I can blow it up, okay? But there were a couple of ways around and through Samaria. The green line that you can see is the most direct route because Jesus is trying to get to Galilee, and so walking right through Samaria is the most direct route. However, the red line is the usual route that Jews took to get into Galilee. Now, why is that? That is because the Jews very deeply despise the Samaritan people, okay? Um, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, um, tells us that often Jews would uh, avoid Samaria because of their hatred toward their country, and the Jews even saw the Samaritans as dangerous, okay? Now, not dangerous because it's like passing through Detroit and you're afraid you'll get shot up, okay? But it's dangerous because uh, they thought that coming in contact with the Samaritans would physically stain their religiosity and it would make them unholy before Yahweh, before God. So they would literally walk around Samaria so that they wouldn't have to come in contact with the Samaritans so that they wouldn't be stained before a holy and a perfect God, right? And so it's kind of like, you know those streets that you like just avoid, right? When you're driving, like you know not to go down those streets, okay? Maybe not in Austin. Austin's ghetto makes Detroit look like the literal physical hell, all right, on earth, right? But like in many cities, there are like streets that you just don't go through, right? You're afraid to go through them. You know that they're dangerous. Natalie and I were driving uh, a couple of winters ago when we went home, and I'm from Pontiac, which is the 10th most dangerous city in America now. We cracked the top 10. Look at us, all right? Um, and uh, so we're driving. I haven't been there in a while, and I made this turn. And as soon as I turned, I was like, oh no, right? So I like locked the doors, put my foot on the gas pedal. We're going 30 or 90 and a 30, okay? I'm like flying through these streets because I know I'm not supposed to pass through there, right? Um, kind of like that, except a little bit different, right? But um, the, the Jews would literally pass around. They would go through it as quick as they can. They would try not to contact these people, okay? And so then why is it that Jesus has to walk into these areas? What is that about, Right? Well, the only real explanation and conclusion is that Jesus was being led by the Spirit of God, okay? Jesus, maybe through prayer, maybe through, uh, 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 you know, revelation from the Lord, whatever it may have been, realized that he had to go to Samaria, and there was a divine appointment waiting for Jesus to interact with a certain someone, all right? And so right away, we see that Jesus is being led by the Spirit. As the story unfolds, we'll see more of these little clues of John kind of giving us an insight as to what the scripture says. Real quick, and I say this frequently, but look for these little clues when you're reading, right? Like it didn't have to put that word have in there. The sentence would make complete sense removing that word. So why did John add that in there? He's trying to give insight to us in, as the reader as to what Jesus is actually doing or something that's uh, uh, influential in the story, okay? Um, so this is a, a small point that will actually unfold into a very large point as the story goes on. Secondly, though, we see there in verse 6 that Jesus was tired. 
okay, or he was weary from his journey. This simply shows us that Jesus was, in fact, a human being, all right? Though God, he was God in the flesh, as we sung in our first Christmas song today. Um, Frequently, it's easy for people to think, oh, yes, Jesus is God, right? But they kind of leave off that second part that Jesus was also man. And the same problem exists in reverse, too. Sometimes people only see Jesus as man, but they don't see him as God. But Scripture lays out both very plainly to us for an important reason. It's important for us to see that Jesus is God and therefore has the power to overcome the grave, to overcome sin. He has the power to lead us to God, but only a man can pay for man's sins, Okay, if we are separated by God, if our sin severs our relationship with God, only a man can actually pay for a man's sin, right? An animal is not sufficient to pay for a man's sin, right? Uh, uh, Something else, there's nothing else sufficient except for a man. And so Jesus actually became a physical, literal human being who is tired, who is hungry, who is thirsty, who experienced the same emotions and feelings and pains that we experience as humans, Right? He wasn't like Casper the ghost walking around in a little bit of physical form. He was a literal man, right? born of a virgin, Jesus on earth, incarnate amongst us. Okay? So that's the setting. Let's keep going. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Let's stop right there. There are a ton of important points here um, in this verse. I'm going to try to fly through them because this actually sets the story. So we have the setting, where Jesus was at, why he was going there. And now here's the really big verse that sets the whole story up for us, okay? Firstly, the previous verse in verse 6, it read that it was about the sixth hour, okay, or 12 noon. All right, that's what time it was. Who in here likes to do the hardest, most strenuous work that you have when it's the hottest time of the day? Anyone? Yeah, no one? Okay, one person, all right. You're a little bit weird, but that's okay, we know, all right. Like, there's usually you try to do it at an early time, you try to do it at a late time, right, when it's a little bit cooler. But 12 noon, as we know, because we live in Texas, it begins to get hot. And they are in a very uh, desert type of region where it gets very, very hot around 12 noon. And so the fact that this woman is coming out in the middle of the day actually tells us something about this woman. We know through history that they would usually go very early in the morning, uh, sometimes as early as 4 a.m. to go draw this water when it was the coolest. This woman wasn't wanting to go with the rest of the women. Okay, now why is that? There could be a few explanations, but the one that this story paints out best for us is that this woman had a little bit of a past. She had a little bit of a history. She was despised amongst the other uh, women, probably because of her moral standing amongst them, right? She wasn't the purest of women, to say the least, okay? And so this woman was coming out middle of the day, and Jesus goes out, and she, he meets her there. She is an outcast, and here comes this man. Secondly, Jesus is breaking all sorts of cultural barriers here by interacting with this woman, okay? Um, First, he's a Jew, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman, and you'll see this unfold in the dialogue of the story a little bit. Also, he is a man who is talking with a woman, okay? That also in this culture, uh, there were actually some laws in that day where rabbis instructed the Jewish males not to speak to women, even their wives, because it was a waste of time, and if they had too long of a conversation, it may end up in them going to hell, okay? Not Detroit, like literal hell, okay? And this is crazy, all right? Now, I'm, that should feel like, what in the world? Well, that's the culture that they're living in, okay? Um, whoever says that the Bible is sexist or holds women in a lesser view doesn't really have an idea of what they're talking about. And I try to say that as politely as I can, but 
That's just, it is what it is in here, okay? Jesus, the New Testament church, they continually honor women. They continually exalt women. Only in scripture are women actually considered equal with men. Throughout that culture, all the way up until that day, women were always considered lesser than men. Right, And then since then, we know that in a lot of cultures around the world, women are still considered lesser than men. However, Jesus, recognizing the creator of them both, realizes that they are equal, men and women. So he doesn't really care that he's talking to a woman. Right? He just sees her as a person, as a being. Okay? And so the feminist movement got some things right in that women are considered equal, but in turn they begin to drag down men or create these weird constructs in, in, in regards. You don't need that. Right? The gospel actually liberates women and says that you are equal, you are considered uh, uh, the same right, in the eyes of God. Different, right? There are differences, but those differences can be celebrated in Christ. And Christ is already unfolding that. Matter of fact, when the disciples come, they're really confused. Not just because he's talking to a Samaritan, but it's a woman. And they probably have read these rabbi laws that say if you do this, you may end up in hell. Right? And Jesus is just shattering these cultural stereotypes, right? I know that the church has messed this up in the past and everybody has a little bit of a history that's a little bit stained, but the true church, when they begin to see Jesus liberate and honor women in that way, will always stand up and say, look, we're equal. We're equal in Christ, right? And you can see the true church doing that as history unfolds, okay? This is also true of culture, too, all right? Um, Y'all get into it. So um, the whole Ferguson issue, right? This whole race issue that's going on right now. All of a sudden in our culture, we feel this racial tension that's beginning to rebuild up again, right? Like a lot of times we thought, oh, like it was done. Okay, we, we kind of came over that. And then all of a sudden all these issues exposes the underlying truth of, hey, it's not done, right? There are still issues from every side of the picture. Listen, Jews and Samaritans hated each other far more than any other American culture has ever hated each other, okay? I know that's hard for you to believe because you grew up in America, but listen, anytime that they say, if you looked at them, you went to hell, like, that's a whole lot more, right? They're putting a whole other constraint around these uh, people just because they're Samaritans. And some races, some people have actually experienced that, and they feel the pain of that living here in America where we as well struggle with race, struggle with culture, just like they did at this time. However, Jesus walks in, and he begins to completely break these cultural barriers that are set up, okay? Can we be real for a second? We're in church, right? We could be honest, okay? Blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, every single culture is actually, in fact, different, right? We are actually a different people, okay? This is a very, very, very beautiful thing, is it not? We are different, but just like women, we're actually equal in the eyes of God, okay? In the gospel, what happens is we can begin to celebrate our differences and realize that those differences actually highlight a different picture of God for us. You tracking with that? And so the fact that there are some, you know, whatever, maybe uh, uh, Eastern cultures that are a little bit more uh, gentle, they have honor, they have family as a little bit of a higher moral than the Western culture does, that's to be honored. There's a difference there. Are they right? No. Are, are, are they right or wrong? No. They're, it's just a difference. Right, But as we begin to look at the gospel, we realize that shows us something about God. God loves family, right? There are other cultures, okay, and I feel like I can speak to this because I'm half black. The black culture tends to be a little bit loud sometimes. We're passionate, right? We like to run around and stuff. Is that a bad thing? No. It actually shows us something about God. Is God a passionate God? I think so. 
right? He's so passionate that he would destroy his own son that you might have a relationship with him, okay? And so God is a passionate God. There are all these different things that all of these different cultures highlight, but only in the gospel can those differences be celebrated. Because outside of the gospel, we try to make everything the same. Like we're all robots. We're not all robots. You and I are different, right? But that's a beautiful thing. Inside of the gospel, we realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and those differences are to be celebrated. And Jesus begins to do the same type of thing that we as a church should be doing in this culture. Jesus is breaking these stereotypes and saying, it doesn't matter that they're Samaritan, right? They're created in the image of God. And the church, in the same way, should be doing it. That's one thing I love about this church. As I'm looking out, there's a total, there's all this diversity. I love it, right? Only in the church could we can celebrate those differences, Okay, that's where redemption places in. That's where redemption comes. And so we see the diversity. I hope that it continues in that way in the church. I hope that we're able to celebrate the differences. And we're able to really say, hey, look, yeah, you're different. Teach me about this. And realize that we're learning about a piece of God in the process when that piece of culture is redeemed for the sake of the gospel. This is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So blacks, whites, even hipsters show us something about God, okay? I know we have a few of y'all in here too, and y'all are your own culture, all right? But Jesus is breaking all sorts of cultural barriers here in verse 7. Finding a woman and then talking to her. He isn't sexist. He isn't racist. He's about the gospel. And he's about to bring the heat, right? He's about to bring it, and it's going to be awesome. The gospel unites. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Get it, Jesus. I love this, okay? He sets her up and then gets right into a gospel conversation with this woman, okay? Do you know something that's very, very interesting about this chapter, chapter four? It's that it's right next to chapter three, all right? Now, I'm not talking math. Some of you are like, really? Wow, okay. I'm talking about the placement that John has it placed in. Um, do you remember what chapter three was about? I know it was several weeks ago, but if you grew up in church, you probably remember. Chapter three, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, our buddy Nick, right? Look at the chart here, okay? I know it's a little bit hard. I put it on black. Um, we'll change that next week. But um, the differences here are unbelievable, okay? Nicodemus is a learned man, right? He's very powerful. He's very respected. He's unbelievably orthodox. He's one of the leaders of the Pharisees in actuality, right? So he's theologically trained. He's a man. He's a Jew, right? He's a ruler, all these things point to, look at this high, exalted man. The woman, on the other hand, the Samaritan woman, is unschooled. She's without a whole lot of influence. That's why she's coming by herself, right, in the middle of the day. She's despised. She has a folk religion. Jesus literally later tells her, you don't even worship the right God. Her religion was unorthodox completely. There was no training Right? She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And I love, to me, one of the biggest differences, Nicodemus has a name, and this woman has never been given a name. We call her the woman at the well because we don't even know what her name was. 
The differences are so drastic. But think, did the Holy Spirit place these chapters next to each other on coincidence? Or is it trying to show us, the reader, something very important about the gospel? That the highest man, okay, no matter how uh, morally upright, no matter how pure, needs the gospel of Jesus. And the person who is very sinful... The person who is very outcast, who is very distant from God, also needs the gospel. Both the religiously, morally upright, try to be a goody-two-shoes guy, and the wicked, sinful, living in licentiousness woman needs the gospel as well. Both of them need Jesus. And it's very, very clear to me as you read the story, even in the way that Jesus describes the gospel to both of them. I love that. Um, Yeah, I just love that. Jesus goes right for her heart, okay? I love how she describes him as a Jew as well, right? You, a Jew. It's funny because the Jews actually describe her as, or Jesus as a Samaritan later in John 8, right? Uh, It's hard to get a correct picture of Jesus until the gospel shines into your heart. That's what that's showing, okay? Here we go, verse 11, keep going. So think about the differences, Nicodemus and the woman. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? Just like Nicodemus, remember in John 3, Jesus shares this spiritual truth, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, how do you enter into your mother and kind of, what? That doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus tells a woman, I have living water. And she says, how are you going to draw? Both of them, Jesus was speaking spiritually, but they only got it physically, right? Even the similarities you can see there. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. I don't know if you write in your Bible or highlight or circle, but highlight that or write wow next to the phrase or whatever you do. That promise is unbelievable to us as Christians. You, if you believe in Jesus, will never thirst again, ever. Never, ever thirst again. You will be forever satisfied in Christ, in the gospel. That is an unbelievably beautiful promise. That is a beautiful promise. It's so intense. Let's keep reading. I'm getting excited. Here we go. Um, Verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me some of this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come in here to draw water. She's still thinking physically. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Yowzers, Jesus, dang. All right, what's going on here, okay? Jesus is offering her spiritual healing. That's what's going on. As we've seen in the previous few verses, I can give you water that will well up into you eternal life. I can give you satisfaction. I can fill what you need, okay? But he then begins to draw out something that she is thirsty for, right? Jesus is offering her spiritual healing, but then he begins to draw out her sins is what's going on. He begins to reveal, hey, you know how I'm talking about this thirst thing? Can I highlight something that you are thirsty for, right? And then goes right into her heart and kind of talks about her husbands and stuff. Apparently, this woman is trying to find her satisfaction in men, right? 
Uh, assuming that not all five of the men died, because that's very rare, that all five men die, right? Assuming that that wasn't the case, then this woman has been going from man to man to man, looking for satisfaction to fill within her that earning, that desire, that, that, that feeling that she feels where she knows there's something more than this, right? And she's been trying to use men to figure out what that is. A thirst for love, a thirst for affection, a, a thirst for acceptance, right? Whatever it may be that she's searching, whatever the root of this is, she has this urging desire that's pressing her forward and trying to have her find it in the men that she is seeing, okay? The law at the time actually forbid anyone getting married more than three times, even if all three of the people died, okay? So not only was she a lawbreaker, according to that law and custom, but she was also an adulterer because the man that she was living with now was not even her husband. And scripture calls that adultery, okay? And so she has all of these, you know, uh, 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 moral flaws. She has all these blemishes on who she is. Now, let me ask you a very important question, okay? I need you to imagine with me a little bit, all right? We just came back from Thanksgiving, so maybe your imaginations are working up a little bit more, but imagine with me, okay? Dig into your heart, and um, how do you expect... Your picture of God the Father, what is his view on this woman, okay? The holy God, all right? The perfect God, okay? Like we're not talking about like dancing through the lilies Jesus, okay? We're talking about a holy, powerful, all-knowing, wrathful God who hates sin, Scripture says. He is a wrathful God. He is jealous for his glory. He hates sin, and he crushes the sinner, it even says, throughout Scripture, Think of that God in heaven and think about her coming across or him coming across her with this track record. What does God say to her? Okay? In your mind, right? What is God thinking about her as he's looking upon this woman? How is he viewing her? How is he feeling about her? Okay? It would be very easy to think about God saying, yuck. Right? Get away from me, you wicked, dirty. I am holy, you are wicked. Step away from me. Right? It would be very, very easy to think about God doing that. Is that what God does? No. No, no, no. That's not what God does by any means because Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And look at how he responds to this woman with redemption rather than disgust. Right? Do you see that here in this text? Jesus responds to this wicked woman who has been running around with redemption rather than disgust. Jesus responds with mercy and with grace rather than with wrath and with punishment. Okay? God wants these people to know him. And he knows that he has something to offer that's far more satisfying than the things that they're chasing. And so God is jealous for this woman's affection toward him. Right? God begins to lay out the gospel to her that she can see there's something more satisfying than what she's been chasing. Himself. Amen? Jesus realizes that he is more satisfying than all of these other things that he's chasing or she's chasing. So he gives her himself. He goes up to her, breaks the cultural standards, lays out the gospel right away to try to draw her into relationship with him. Jesus is a very, very merciful, compassionate God who longs for people to know him. Jesus offers her this water that will forever, ever satisfy. Jesus is a very, very good God, right? So he forces her to see her sin so that she sees that she needs him as a savior. Because if he allows her to continue to walk blindly, she'll keep going from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy, right? Many of us even try to bury our sin and try not to face it, 
right? We try to forget that we're sinful. We try to forget that we're wicked people, right? We try to forget all of the sins that kind of come up, and we try to never think about it because it makes us feel dark and it makes us feel ashamed. Do you know what looking at your sin actually does? Looking at your sin actually points to the fact that you need a savior. Looking at your sin is not necessarily a bad thing unless it draws you toward depression, but what it should do is you should look at it and go, I'm not that great of a person. I really need somebody to save me. And look at the savior that we have, Jesus, a compassionate savior a loving savior, one who comes down tired and weary and has just been walking for six hours and begins to have a conversation with this woman and tries to draw her into himself. Jesus, who went to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, in the last chapter and gave himself to Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Jesus is probably tired. Nicodemus is coming to him because he's ashamed in the middle of the night and Jesus lays out the gospel for him too. Jesus wants you to know him, whether you think you're too good for him or whether you think you're too bad for him. Jesus has laid out both and says, no, both of you need me. Come to me, come to me, right? Go to Jesus. He's a very, very good savior. He's gentle. He longs to satisfy. He can wash and he can make you clean. Keep reading, verse 19. So he highlights her sin, okay? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oh, really? <laughs> right? She didn't tell him this. He just knew this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Notice how he's even calling God father to her. That's interesting if you know the history of that, right? You worship what you do not know. There's a folk religion. We worship the Jews. What we do know for salvation is from the Jews, not for the Jews, but from the Jews, okay? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Circle that, bracket that, highlight that, write whatever you need to next to that. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is seeking out these people. He's going and trying to find these people to worship him. God is, in, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Circle must. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called to Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, like a boss, said, I who speak to you am he. I love that phrase, right? Jesus goes right into it. I am that Messiah that you're looking for. I am that Savior. There's a lot here, but I want to just pull out one very important point, Okay. Um, in order to have water that satisfies forever, in order to have the water that springs up into eternal life, you have to come to the correct God with the correct heart. Okay? Don't miss that. Spirit and truth. Do you see that here? The Jews at the time had the right understanding of God. They were truly worshiping Yahweh. Right? Like they had a good understanding. They were orthodox. They were theologically trained. But most of them were so caught up in their religion, they were trying to work themselves to God, missing exactly who God was. Right? They were trying to find their own righteousness by being good enough. They had the right ideas about God, but not the right heart behind those ideas. Right? It's very rare that Jesus corrects the Jews' theology. Their theology is usually spot on. What he's always trying to correct is their heart. Because their heart is not worshiping God. They didn't have the spirit or the heart behind it, right? The Samaritans had a great spirit. You see it even here in this woman. The second she realizes he's a prophet, she's like, I have this theological question that I need you to answer. I want to worship the right God. 
I want to come to God. Is this how we do it? Or is that she had the right spirit, but she was not approaching the right God this whole time. You need both head and heart, spirit and truth to worship the right God, right? Many people today have the heart to worship God. And so they try to find God in different religions or in different practices or in trying to be a good enough people. But if the, if the truth isn't behind it, then you're not worshiping the right God. And God's not being mean by making only one way or trying to put you in a box. He's actually freeing you, okay? Um, think of it like this, right? Um, could you imagine... If, like, I love my wife, right? And so let's say that I had the, the, the truthful thoughts about my wife, okay? She's beautiful. She loves Jesus. She honors me. She blesses Micaiah, right? And I'm just like, I have all these correct thoughts, okay? And so then I go up to a woman, and I go, man, you're just so beautiful. You're so lovely. I, I'm so thankful for you. You know, I try to kiss her, but it's not my wife. Is that honoring to Natalie? See, my spirit is in it. I have the right intention to, but I don't have the truth. That's not my wife. And so spirit without truth is very detrimental because you're not worshiping the right God. And the same is true in reverse as well. Jesus says, in order to get to God, you have to come both in spirit and in truth. You have to have the desire to know who God is, recognize that you need him, come into the gospel, but you also have to have the right idea about God. Right? Because if you don't have the right idea, it's like me going to a woman who I don't even know and trying to like honor her as my wife. That's not my wife, right? And so this woman was trying to go to God the Father, honor him. That's not God the Father. She didn't know the right God. But Jesus in grace is trying to reveal truth to her just as he's doing in our hearts even today, even right now. Trying to reveal the true nature of who he is, right? Um, Jesus very plainly tells this woman that he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the way to get to God. Okay, and it's important for us to see we need both spirit and truth to uh, view God. This woman gets it, okay? This woman actually gets it. Look at it here. I think I have a chart up on the screen for you to look at. But this woman's view of Jesus is changing as the story goes on, right? In verse 9, she calls him a Jew, right? You, a Jew, which is a little bit derogatory, okay? If I came to you and said, you, a black woman, right? You, a Mexican man, you're going to be like, what? Right? Like, a little bit derogatory. She's not being respectful. Verses 11 and 15, what does she call him? Sir, right? Hey, they're a little bit more respectful. Verse 19, all of a sudden, she's like, hey, I think you're a prophet. Okay? And then in what we're about to read, I think it's in verse 29, right? Yeah, she calls him the Christ. Okay? Let's read that. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to a town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Now, did he tell her all that she ever did? No, this is hyperbole, but she's saying she is so impressed with this man. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, now we have to assume that she said more than just that to the town because the whole town begins to come to Jesus. She is so overwhelmed with who this man is. And I love that. Look at, why does John say that she left her water jar behind? Right, why is John highlighting that for us? Once again, see the little things in the story. You can take that out and it still be a complete sentence and a good story, right? But she leaves her water jar. Why? She's either believing this is who I am satisfied in him now, right? I no longer need to come what I'm coming for. At minimum, she's so excited about the news that she just received that she leaves a very valuable possession behind. Whatever it is, right, this woman is intrigued and convincingly believing in who Jesus is, as we'll see as the story keeps going. Verse 31. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. Okay, there's a lot going on in here. We don't have time to go through all this. But I love the one thing I want to point out about this and in regards to this story is that the woman didn't understand that Jesus was speaking spiritually until the story began to go on. And the disciples, just like Nicodemus, just like the woman, don't understand that Jesus is speaking spiritually, right? He said, I have food to do. And they said, does someone give this dude something to eat? Did he eat from the Samaritan woman? They're probably whispering, right? Because it was considered dirty to do that, okay? They're trying to figure out. They, just like the woman, just like Nicodemus, was a little bit blind to the spiritual truth that Jesus presents. What is he saying, though? I have something that is more satisfying than even eating. That's sharing the gospel and seeing people come to know who God is, okay? I was in India once, and... um, I was there with a guy named Gary. Gary is probably the most, like, spiritual man that I've ever met, okay? So I was rooming with Gary, and uh, he said, hey, in the morning, do you want to get up and pray? And I was like, oh, sure, that'd be great, you know? Now, my idea of getting up to pray in the morning before we are on a mission trip is, like, we got to be at breakfast at 7.30, so get up at, like, 7.05, all right? Get dressed, and then from 7.15 to 7.30, kind of pray while you're, like, rubbing your eyes, right? This man wakes me up at 4 o'clock in the morning, no joke. And said to me, hey, I've already been praying for like a half hour. I thought you would wake up, but I figured I'd just wake you up so you could pray with me. I look at the clock and I'm like, you are high, bro, right? Like I'm not trying to pray. So I got down on my knees and I'm pretty sure I slept for the next like three hours almost, right? There'd be times where I realized there was like a long moment of silence and I would kind of start praying, but I wouldn't feel anything, you know. Anyway, at one point I did end up kind of waking up and we were praying and it was really, really good. And we were praying that people would come to know Jesus, which people actually did that day. And we were just like really interceding, asking the Lord. Also, we heard a knock at our door. Somebody came. It was 8 o'clock. We only get a half hour for breakfast. So they said, hey, it's time to go. Where were you guys at for breakfast? And Gary said, we have food to eat that you don't know about. I'm like, dog, you were tripping, bro, right? First you wake me up at 4. Now I don't even eat. And we're in India. And the food is hard to eat anyway for me because I do not like spicy food. Sorry, okay. But it was, I was like, man, this guy's crazy. It was so crazy. So lunch was at 11.30 usually, and it was 2.15, and we had not eaten yet. And my whole team was, like, complaining and bickering and, like, frustrated. And I was like, man, I'm not hungry at all. And I went and asked Gary. I said, man, are you hungry? He said, like, I told you we have food that satisfies. I was like, man, I don't really know how to draw conclusions to that, to be honest with you, okay? I'm not saying skip meals and pray instead. Like, I'm sure you need to physically eat, but literally, there was something at that day that was more satisfying than eating curry on egg for breakfast, right? There was something that was a little bit more satisfying than that. It was going before the Father and asking him. It was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. And I uh, actually fast on a kind of normal basis. And every day, it's pretty easy as I'm drawing in toward God. Like there's something that's more satisfying. It's really crazy. So not only do I think Jesus is speaking spiritually here, but maybe even a little bit physically. Remember Jesus came to the well thirsty, and hungry, the disciples get food. He doesn't ever drink anything and never eats anything, but he's satisfied. What's going on there, 
right? Maybe the spiritual actually supersedes the physical. Let's keep going. Um, finish, finish this. Last couple of verses, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that that this indeed is the Savior of the world. I love this ending. First of all, the Samaritan woman shared her faith, and many people believed, okay? Others may may not have right away, but through her influence, she invited them to come see Jesus, and then they themselves got saved as well, okay? This is just an encouragement, I think, for us who has tasted that living water. Share your testimony, right? Her testimony wasn't very profound. She said, come see a man that's, 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 that's told me everything I've ever done. It's not even true, actually, right? He didn't tell her everything, but she's so enthusiastic about Jesus. Share your testimony. If you're a Christian, what has God done in your life? You've tasted it, right? You've seen the goodness of God. You've seen how he's provided. You've seen how he's comforted you. You've seen how he's cleared your anxiety or given you the relationship that you've always wanted in him or whatever it may be. You see that Jesus is truly satisfying. Share that, right? Maybe they won't believe. Some people will because of that testimony, Others need to be invited to something. So invite them into your life. Invite them into a community group. Invite them into church, right? Whatever it may be, try to share people this beautiful news of Jesus winning people to himself, right? You may have even been invited today to church because somebody wants you to experience the living water that they themselves have tasted. That's why they invited you, right? This isn't a check in the box or a number. They really believe that Jesus is the all-satisfying God of the whole entire world and wants you to taste that goodness too right? Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman who's wicked, who's despised, and lays out the gospel for her in beautiful ways so that she can see there's something more satisfying than what she's been pursuing. And the same is true for us. Whatever wells you've been going to, the broken cisterns that don't fully satisfy, you draw up water and it leaks right away. You're never quenched. Jesus doesn't just give you a well to draw from, right? He is that well that lives inside of your heart and it springs up eternal life, it says. That's actually why we named our church the what we named our church. It's from these verses right here, the well right, that we would see Jesus and be so overwhelmingly satisfied with him that we would love him with all of our heart and make him known to others, right? Jesus is all satisfying. Go to him. He can quench your thirst. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being an all-satisfying God. Um, Lord, you are truly good, and you truly do satisfy every single uh, desire that's in our hearts. And I pray you would do that, God. As we think about this Christmas season, as we look toward Christmas, and for some of us it may be painful, for some of us it may be exciting, whatever it is, I pray it would draw us towards you, Jesus, that we would anticipate your first coming and realize the beauty that was behind it, and even anticipate your second coming, Jesus. And see what it will be like when we finally get to live in eternity with you. We pray you would come quickly, Lord. But God, before you do that, would you teach us what it means to be completely satisfied in you, Christ? God, there may be people in here today who who have never fully tasted you. I pray that even right now, you would be drawing them towards yourself, pleading with them that they would know you, Jesus. 
God, I pray that us who so frequently go astray, we so frequently forget that you are the all-satisfying well. Let us forever come back to you, the well that forever fills our thirst, God. Let us run hard towards you, Jesus. We thank you, God, for being a gracious God who overlooks our trespasses, who puts them onto yourself and pays for them that we may have eternal life in you. Lift up your name in our hearts, Jesus. Praise in your name. Amen. Um, the ushers are going to